2: Hi, and welcome to Hold Your Fire, a podcast by the International Crisis Group. I'm Naz Modirzadeh.
0: And I'm Richard Atwood. Today, we're gonna to talk about Iraq. We're gonna talk about the protests known as the Tishreen movement that have upended Iraqi politics over the past few years. We're also gonna talk about Prime Minister Mustafa al-Kadhimi's trip to Washington this week, and US President Joe Biden's announcement that US forces will end combat operations in Iraq by the end of the year. For months, young Iraqis have been on the streets intent on sweeping away the
2: old guard. From late 2019 to the end of 2020, protesters camped out in city and town squares across much of central and southern Iraq. Like many protests elsewhere in the world, the Tishreen uprising in Iraq was mostly a leaderless, youth-driven and grassroots movement. Iraqi politicians and authorities tried but failed to co-opt protesters. Nor could they reach a settlement with them, which would have entailed deeper reform than Iraq's leaders were prepared to offer. In Iraq, three more protesters have been killed today as demonstrators continue their campaign for new elections and an end to corruption.
0: Sentiment was clear among protesters on Tuesday, calling for justice in the face of a growing tide of activist assassinations.
2: Instead, the security forces ended up cracking down paramilitaries, known as the Hasht al shabi many of which are backed by Iran and fought the Islamic State, played a role in the repression. This year, protests have largely dissipated. But although they forced one government to step down, the chronic problems that brought thousands of young people to the streets remain. It's far from clear that elections this October can regenerate Iraqi politics and offer a way out.
0: I'd like to thank the American people on behalf of all Iraqis people. Mr. President, I thank you for all the plan and reserves the American has given for free and democratic Iraq. Our role in Iraq will be as a uh, dealing with not... It's just to be available, to continue to train, to assist, to help, and to deal with ISIS as it, as it arrives. But uh, we are not going to be by the end in a combat mission. That was Prime Minister Kadimi and President Biden just after their meeting in the White House a few days ago. But although Biden announced that U.S. forces would end their combat mission, it's not clear how much that will change what the 2,500 American troops currently in Iraq are actually doing. Although U.S. forces are there to fight ISIS, American troops have been attacked by some of the Iran-backed paramilitaries that Nas mentioned. Those attacks picked up after the killing by the U.S. in early 2020 of Iranian Revolutionary Guards Commander Qasem Soleimani and the Iraqi paramilitary commander Abu Mahdi al-Muhandis. Today we're going to talk to Lahib Higel, Crisis Group's Iraq expert. Crisis Group has just published a big report by Lahib on the protest movement. The report's called the Tishreen Movement, from the barricades to the ballot box. Lahib, thanks for joining us.
2: Thank you. So Laib, like, can I ask if you had to kind of distill what were the the key or the central uh, causes or or demands of the protest movement uh, in 2019, uh, what would you say?
1: The protest started as a reaction first to uh, student marches where students of uh, higher education were protesting the lack of job opportunities. People were also demonstrating, as usual, what happens after summers is that heat waves go through much of Iraq. There is a very poor provision of electricity in Iraq, especially in the southern governments. And in 2018 in Basra, there was also a lack of clean water for people to drink. So these issues compounded after years and and made people, especially young people, come together and organize themselves in a non-political way. So the usual grievances were there, uh, lack of work opportunities, poor public service provision. But because The reaction by the state was very swift and very harsh in the first days of the protest on the 1st of October. People killed nearly 100 only in the first week of the protests the demands changed. They changed into some wanting a complete overhaul of the post-2003 political order, meaning resignation of not just the government, but also the parliament and installing an interim government and facilitating early elections under a new election law. These demands really came as a shock to the political elite. First of all, what happened was that the harsh response didn't disincentivize people from coming into the street. On the other hand, uh, there was a large popular backing to the protesters. As it happened in October, there was a brief pause for the so-called Arba'in pilgrimage, a significant Shia holiday. So the protest took a pause for about two weeks and, and came back with larger crowds, and that was also when the sit-in demonstrations took over Tahrir Square in Baghdad and also other significant protest sites throughout the South. And Laib, you've
2: done a great job of describing for us how this really wasn't an organized kind of top-down movement or one put together by political parties. But in what ways did political parties seek to become involved and to co-opt the protest movement?
1: When it was clear that the protests were going to continue, The traditional parties of mass mobilization, including uh, the Communist Party and the Sudrists, decided that they need to take part in this as parties that would usually or claim that they stand sort of on the people's side. So they entered the squares trying to, especially the Sudrists, trying to find a middle ground, because these parties are obviously a part of the political system. They don't want to see the political system go, but they could potentially agree to certain reforms. So they, together with the activists, uh, and with significant backing, we should not forget, of the main religious institution that we have in Iraq, the Marja'iyya, which is headed by Grand Ayatollah uh, Sistani, they together started crafting certain demands that finally pressured the government To resign. After this, there was a clear rift between what the protesters or the activists wanted and what the political parties that came in support of the protest wanted. They wanted to move back into politics as usual, sort of saying that the protest movement had played out its role in the streets. Now we have to go back. You know, we have managed to get the government to resign. There will be a new prime minister. It's time for life to go back as normal. Protesters, on the other hand, were not happy with this. I should say most of them. Some of them accepted this, wanted to give it a chance, see what a new prime minister could potentially offer. But it stood very clear that, for example, issues of accountability would not be addressed. Because of the repression, there was simply such a big distrust that the political elite would reform itself. So we still have protesters wanting to see the political system reformed, fundamentally, whereas most parties would say that we have done what we promised to do.
0: So, Lahib, we'll move on in a moment to the way that the security forces, paramilitaries uh, responded. But you, you mentioned that the Sadrist party, could you say a word or two more about how its leader, Muqtada al-Sadr, is this cleric from a prominent Iraqi family who became famous for opposing the US presence in the early years after the US invasion. He's always sort of portrayed himself as, as challenging the traditional political elite, even though he's now pretty much part of that elite. How has he positioned himself alongside the protests?
1: Indeed, to begin with, um, Sutter saw that, first of all, uh, he cannot allow a large movement of street mobilization to go on without him being involved, uh, seeing that he has been the main driver of street mobilization in the past. And I think they also thought that it would be easy for them to sort of co-opt or take over, meaning that... Sutter can push people out to the street to protest for a specific goal. Um, In the past, that has been replacing government ministers, for example, but usually he would then pull away when he has sort of achieved his specific political goals. In this case, the protesters wanted to go further. And obviously this was difficult for for Sutter to, to support. There were also other expressions to this protest movement that we haven't seen in the past. So a widespread diversity of, of cultural expressions, both religious And secular. And this was a a problem for Sadr to deal with. Also, the the mixing of genders, for example, in the protest squares was something that Sadr turned against at one point and which really provoked the protest movement. And especially in January, after the killing of Qasim Soleimani, the IRGC commander, and Abu Mahdi al-Muhandis, who is a a significant Hashan commander uh, in Iraq, Sadr turned Against the movement. After that, it was not possible for him to continue to support a movement, which was also seen and expressed to a large degree anti-Iranian sentiment.
2: Can you tell us more about the way that the various security forces responded to the protests and cited that some more than some six hundred people were killed? What happened?
1: So in in 2019, there had been less than a year since, at that time, the new government had come into power with uh, Prime Minister Adel Mahdi. In that election, there was also a significant win by, let's call them the victors of the war against ISIS. Uh, These are the forces that fought against ISIS on a voluntary basis, what we're called in Iraq, the Hasht al-Shaabi or the Popular Mobilization Forces. These are an umbrella organization for paramilitary groups, especially from the south, uh, so Shia paramilitary groups that took up arms to fight ISIS. They, Many of them already existed as political organizations in the past some of them created new political parties ahead of the 2018 elections so these parties or these groups essentially translated their battlefield victories into election success by winning a large amount of seats in parliament many of these groups are also loyal to iran and some of them take their commands from iran rather than the commander-in-chief in in iraq or the prime minister so What happened in terms of the repression was not only that state repression of protests has happened in the past. All security forces have been involved. But now there was an added element with these paramilitary groups that make up the Shabi. At the time, Iran was a very strong backer of the government, and there was a very high level coordination between the government, these groups, and Iran in terms of how to quell these protests because they all saw it as a threat.
0: And so, Lahib as you, as you say, this year, you know, partly because of the crackdowns and then also partly because of Covid, protests have sort of dissipated. But, you know, as you say, many protesters still feel that their core grievances, that their core demands haven't been addressed. They might have got a new government, but the system remains largely unreformed and some of the electoral reforms they wanted, they, they haven't happened. How is this this sort of popular anger? Is it is it likely to express itself again? There's elections coming up. I mean, are there politicians, new politicians, that represent those sort of demands and grievances that are likely to to contest those polls?
1: Indeed, we haven't seen much in in terms of uh, a reform agenda, and I don't think that that was expected either from this government, considering that it's an interim government. But what the activists have try to do is to accept and still honor the the you know the rules of the democratic game and try to organize themselves into political parties that would compete in elections now the problem is that because of the targeted violence that is still ongoing many of these parties are hesitant to actually field their candidates because that would potentially mean that they would be targeted in their provinces. But they are also worried that if they participate in the political process, that they would be co-opted, that there wouldn't be much for them to do. But definitely, if these elections don't yield any sort of political change, then we will see more protest further down the line.
0: You know, we're, we're so used in Iraq to thinking about the the sort of sectarian politics particularly given the sort of emergence of ISIS and then the, the the battle against ISIS but correct me if this is wrong i mean this is mostly a dynamic that's happening with the within the majority Shia it's pitting a Shia majority elite against sort of Shia protesters and involved in that uh, Shia paramilitaries is is that right to what extent is that new
1: absolutely that is right and uh again, I think that is a consequence of uh, the conclusion of the war on ISIS. Large parts of the Iraqi population, especially the younger generation, does not really believe in the sectarian conflict. They did not experience the rule of Saddam. And and they also, many of them were too young to have directly experienced the, the sectarian war. So, coming out of the experience where they fought against ISIS, and that no longer seems to be a direct threat to them. They really wonder what it is that their leaders... uh, At the end of the day, governance has been Shia-led since 2003. So for them, this is no longer convincing. And therefore, we will continue to see these kind of intra-Shia tensions, which on the one hand are generational, and on on the other hand... It's a question of what type of governance Iraqis want to see. We have a part of the population that is very conservative. And then on the other hand, you have a very globalized generation of youth that are more secular.
2: Laib, can I ask you about the role of Iran, particularly in the context of, of the PMF and, and this dual role that you mentioned of both being kind of formally and legislatively part of the Iraqi state, but also often uh, claimed to be more under the direct control of Iran? How should we understand Iran's role in this?
1: In in terms of control, Iran's role has And it's and it's going down. So as I mentioned, with the electoral gains that these groups made in the 2018 elections and Iranian and Iraqi government and hashed interests sort of aligned, uh, there was a very tight coordination and cooperation between the two. Today, there is Still, of course, significant backing by Iran to these groups. And I don't think that that is going to go away, considering the remaining U.S.-Iran tensions that, that occur inside Iraq. We still see attacks by these groups against U.S. targets or coalition forces targets, etc. Et but with the killing of, of Qasem Soleimani and, and Abu Mahdi Mohendis, this coordination started to fragment in the sense that these various paramilitary groups, lost two of its main leaders, the Iraqi one and and the Iranian one. This has meant that some of them have, have been going on to make their own decisions. So we still have a degree of coordination, but I don't think that it is what it used to be.
0: So, you know, as we said up top, uh, Prime Minister Kazimi was in D.C., was in Washington just this week. A couple of days ago, he met with President Biden in the White House. There were the sort of usual words of support, but then President Biden also announced that the U.S. would end its combat mission in Iraq by the end of the year. Is that sort of significant? And what, is, what does that mean for what U.S. forces are doing in Iraq?
1: I think the timing of it is significant because we are headed towards elections. Uh, for the U.S., it has been important to try to lower the temperature with these pro-Iran forces groups in Iraq that have been mounting attacks against the U.S. uh, and diplomatic missions in Iraq. And in order to do that, they need to have a strong ally in Baghdad. For the moment, that is Prime Minister Kalami. However, he himself has, because of these U.S.-Iran tensions, suffered a lot Ever since the killing of Soleimani and Mohandas, it has been a demand by many of the the Shia parties, in particular those that are sort of on the pro-Iran side, that U.S. forces should be expelled. And there has been a long debate in Iraq in terms of what does that mean. The the coalition forces have been transferring their mission from a combat role into a more advisory role, sharing intelligence. This transition has been going on for quite some time. So there is nothing new about that. And I don't think that we will see any significant reduction in the level of troops. And so I think that the timing of this message is really geared towards the elections. And I think it has had some effect in the sense that many political parties in Iraq, including some of the Shia political parties, have come out in support of this, whereas let's call them the resistance groups of the Hashid are still very sceptic of this.
0: Those resistance groups, those are the groups that are backed by Iran or aligned to Iran.
1: Exactly. They have not been accepting the narrative that has been going on for a long time, that has been communicated from the U.S. and from coalition forces, that the mission is transitioning. To them, they see that there are still combat forces on the ground. It remains to be seen if, if they will accept the promise that has now been delivered during, during Kadami's uh, visit to D.C.,
2: in your view, live, what will be the role in the upcoming elections of attitudes towards the U.S. presence? Is it largely one that acts in a mode of resistance and that there is a, a kind of um, antipathy towards the U.S. presence that can be mobilized in the elections, or is it a more complicated picture?
1: In that sense, we have two sides within the Iraqi political scene and, and sort of uh, a middle ground that is a bit more complicated. On the one side, you have Kurdish political parties, Sunni political parties, and some, let's call them moderate Shia political parties, that very clearly state that continued US presence in Iraq is important to fight ISIS. On the other hand, you have the, the political parties that are backed by Iran, that will use this to mobilize their constituents to come out and vote. And one of those strategies might be to say, look, here is a a deal that is not really true. And then we have a few Shia parties that stand in the middle. And for them, This is a very tricky balance because still for Iraqis, and I think even for some politicians, it's quite difficult to clarify uh, what the role of these troops actually are at present. Uh, And even if they have moved into uh, an advising role, training, sharing intelligence... Uh, it's very clear for some Iraqis that they retain other capabilities. So the Iraqis themselves would need to create uh, a new narrative in terms of what this troop presence means for Iraq.
0: Nominally, of course, the US forces are there to help fight ISIS. What is ISIS now? I mean, it's obviously lost a lot of the territory controlled some years ago. How much of a threat does it actually still pose to Iraq?
1: We do have a very small insurgency that remains active in Iraq. Uh, this insurgency is active in areas that were liberated by the Iraqi security forces uh, and the Peshmerga in Chile. Uh, and and those corresponds to areas that are called the disputed territories, those that lie just south of what is the Kurdistan region and, and the federal Iraq. Many of these areas are rural uh, it is very difficult for any security forces to completely control them. ISIS has built tunnels over, over the years that they controlled these these areas. And it's simply very difficult to, to oust what remains of ISIS uh, from this part of the country, uh, especially in provinces such as Kirkuk, uh, Salah ad-Din, and Diyala. And, and I should say that many of those ISIS fighters are, are local to these areas. We also have small uh, cells, terrorist cells that, that remain that, that ISIS clearly is still capable of activating uh, occasionally. We, ha- For a long time, for almost three years, we had almost no attacks inside Baghdad city. Uh, and now we've had a few this year in Baghdad. And these suicide attacks have killed between 50 to 100 people in, in these de- different attacks. So it is, the threat remains, although it, it's not what it, what it used to be, for sure.
0: And so if we're thinking, Lahiba, I mean, obviously that there's a big debate now in Washington about sort of US troops deployed abroad in general, comes in the context of, of what's happening in Afghanistan, of course. What is the end game? I mean, when is there a point at which US forces can leave? And, and sort of what does that look like? And how feasible is it that Iraq gets to that point anytime soon?
1: I think this is a really serious dilemma for the U.S. and Iraq. In comparison uh, to Afghanistan, where the main threat, obviously, is the Taliban, uh, the Taliban doesn't uh, pose a global threat like ISIS does. And they have a past experience of this, right? And with this, some of the people in this administration in particular, uh, when Obama withdrew in 2011, you know, that was what what gave the the space for for ISIS to grow and ev- eventually take over and i don't think that any us president wants that potentially to happen under their watch so to a certain degree it's you know kicking the can down the road and i guess then with time they're hoping that the kind of tense political situation that we have in iraq today between various uh, parties and security forces Uh, will stabilise to a degree that the Iraqis themselves can take care of the threat.
0: Lahib, could I I take the position of kind of a a sceptic about the, the US presence and say, sure, you know, ISIS was a big global threat when it controlled a big chunk of Iraq and Syria and had this sort of infrastructure to inspire attacks abroad, even direct them in some cases have this mass recruitment going on, including in Western societies. But the chance of it ever, even if it remains a threat in in Iraq and Syria, as you described, the chance of it ever becoming that again is quite small. So is it right to see it as as still the sort of global threat that it once was? And is it sort of right to, to think that the US presence is just about countering that potential global threat again?
1: no you're right i i don't think that it's it's only about that but i i meant specifically in terms of the decision to withdraw at this point i still think that that is a risk in the back of the head of this administration uh that if the us leaves it would leave for good i assume that would be the aim uh and no one would want to be dragged back in with the risk that 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 isis uh, could re- regroup somehow. It's true that, that the recruitment capacity of ISIS is not what it was and, and will not be again. We cannot forget with the Iraqi context uh, in particular is that ISIS was able to uh, to thrive in the beginning very much based on the grievances uh, in the Sunni areas. And a lot of recruits came from these areas in Iraq. Now what we have seen post ISIS is that many of these areas are slowly reconstructing. Life is 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 coming back to normal, but many of the grievances that existed from there before are, are still relevant.
0: And so, what would happen if U.S. troops did actually just pull out completely?
1: I think in terms of the intelligence sharing, uh, the U.S. forces are quite significant. If you listen to what the coalition forces say, uh, they say that the Iraqi security forces are very much ready uh, to do the, the groundwork, which they already are. But then the question is, of course, if they would pull out altogether, there would be no further support in terms of the advisory role and the training. And I, and I think some of the Iraqi security forces that I've, I've spoken to would say themselves that uh, they would not want to do without that support.
2: Leib, in the end, do you have the sense that for the U.S., it, the, the question is more about counterbalancing Iran and, and managing the Iran threat? Or is your sense that it is uh, this kind of genuine concern about the ongoing threat posed by ISIS?
1: So I think under the previous administration, it was very clear uh, that the U.S. presence in Iraq served a dual purpose, one to, to counter ISIS and the and, and the other one to, to counterbalance Iran. I'm not sure to what degree this is uh, still, you know, one of the, the core reasons for this administration. The U.S. has entered into talks uh, with the Iranians over re-entering the nuclear deal this Might take a long time for sure. On the other hand, there there seems to be interest on on both sides to eventually come to some sort of uh, agreement. And at the end of the day, for now, the the fight seems to be much more between what remains of the US presence in Iraq and the Iraqi groups that are mounting some of this pressure. Uh, And that pressure is not only due to what is happening in the talks between the U.S. and Iran. It is also related to what I said earlier, with some of these groups having developed kind of their own interests. The question then is, to what degree is it worth for the U.S. to stay with with the risk of having their troops harmed? With the Trump administration, we had so many more attacks that were sort of on the brink the u.s considered to close down its, its embassy in Baghdad for example I think we're pretty far away from that sort of scenario now so what it would seem like is that uh, for now the the us is 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 willing to to take on that risk and retains the the, the right to retaliate which they have done but they've tried to do so moderately preferably striking in Syria, where some of these groups operate, rather than inside Iraq. Uh, but of course, it also depends on, on um, to what degree these Iraqi groups are, are willing to escalate as well.
0: Lee, that's, that's so well put. I mean, it's interesting that, that the word sort of proxies are often kind of overused. How much do you think some of the attacks on U.S. bases are being driven by decision-making in Iraq, and how much by decision-making in Tehran, especially since, as you say, Soleimani's death appears to have led to Iran having less control over some of the groups in Iraq. What do you think would happen were the US and Iran not able to get back to the nuclear deal? Obviously, negotiations sort of a bit of a standstill at the moment with the new president elected in Iran, with Raisi coming to power. Could that potentially signal a change in Iraq if those negotiations then end up falling apart?
1: First of all, there is uh a Still an aligned interest between some of these groups and Iran, and I don't think that that is going to go away uh, and so of course, the Iraqi scene is a part of of a larger conflict between the u s and and Iran across the region, uh, and we know that Iraq has been you know one of the main areas where where Iran is able to to transfer weapons through Iraq into Syria towards lebanon and i think that those lines are something that iran would want to retain it also happens that for them to be able to do that the paramilitary groups that have taken over and are now holding ground in areas of iraq where they previously did not uh, are very significant uh, to maintain these lines so if you look at uh, An area like Sinjar, for example, that is both a disputed area in Iraq, it borders Syria, it is not far from Turkey, and it is void of regular Iraqi security forces and Kurdish forces. Instead, we have these Shia paramilitary groups that control that area. So on the one hand, they are able to control smuggling lines between Syria and Iraq, but they themselves have also created their own economic activities in these areas. So let's say that Iran could potentially negotiate, let's say, lessened activity by these groups in some parts of the country. Some of these groups would want to hold on to these areas because of their own economic activities. And I think this is where we've seen already some of these tensions between Iran and these groups happening. But overall, There is a small but significant amount of groups in Iraq that are still very much uh, loyal to to Iran.
0: Leib, thanks so much for coming on. Thank you. So Naz, another fascinating discussion with with some familiar themes, including, of course, the, the role of US forces.
2: Yeah, absolutely. I I thought particularly when she described the idea that for many Iraqis, they really don't know what is the purpose of the American forces remaining in Iraq and what is the scope of their authorities and the scope of their capabilities. Uh, I think that's really a striking observation. And the idea that You know, to a certain extent, the idea of of arguing that that one is encouraging or supporting democracy and democratic change while also seeking to maintain a military presence that is shrouded in secrecy from the population seems problematic, uh, to say the least.
0: Yeah, you know I mean you know there's the there's the sort of this big question of what the US is doing with all its troops in different places, you know, partly as a result of these sort of post 9/11 wars and I mean it just seems that the the Biden administration seems and I mean maybe maybe it's still sort of developing its policy in in Iraq, but it seems to view the presence in iraq quite differently to the way it views the presence in afghanistan in afghanistan you know sort of trump had this agreement with the taliban you could argue how much the taliban fulfilled its commitments but there was this this deal in iraq biden has inherited something quite different where you know trump for all the talk of getting out and withdrawing us forces in fact the trump administration did keep this sort of presence in iraq Undoubtedly, partly motivated not just by ISIS but by the idea of of, of pushing back on on Iranian influence. Obviously, there was the, these these strikes and the killing of Qasim Soleimani that, that that Lahib talked about. And then, you know, as Lahib said, there is this question of ISIS itself and you know, whether it is a global threat, whether it could ever be a global threat again. I think is is an open question, but it is clearly very different to to the Taliban. And I'm sure that on some level. Biden administration officials do think back to what happened the last time the U.S. pulled out of Iraq uh, when, uh, you know, when President Obama was, was, was in power and the sort of emergence of, of ISIS after that. So I think that a very different set of calculations is informing the policies in Iraq than, than those informing the decisions in Afghanistan. But at the same time, you know, there is still a sort of similar set of questions for, for the U.S., you know what is the end state, and is that reachable? you know what are they what is what are u s forces trying to do there? when is it going to be time for the u s to withdraw? Does the presence serve u s interests and if so, sort of how do you define u s interests and then i think for, for you know for an organization like crisis group the u s presence, whether it's in Iraq or whether it's in other places you know is is it making things better or worse for the country or for the for the conflict for international peace and security more broadly
2: absolutely and in a sense, I think in terms of the comparison with afghanistan this larger question of whether or not we expect increasingly an idea of, of an end to war without any expectation that that means peace, right? So this kind of sense that there is a withdrawal, there is a drawing down of troops, and yet there is also simultaneously this notion that, that some kind of forces will remain in place and will continue, you know, as Lay put it, to be able to engage in attacks and sort of what what does that, as you said, or what does the end look like? And how, what does it mean for there to actually be an end to conflict in a country like Iraq?
0: Right, right. I mean, there's the, there's the, the sort of expression, end forever wars. But, you know, the, the, of course, the wars will continue when the U.S. Uh, withdraws, as we're seeing in Afghanistan. I mean, the war, whatever you think of the U.S. withdrawal, that the violence is going to get worse. Afghanistan's war predated the U.S. intervention in 2001. It will clearly uh, last past the, the U.S. pullout uh, this year. I mean, if, if anything is a forever war at the moment, it's, it's the war in Afghanistan, not the U.S. war in Afghanistan.
2: Hold Your Fire is a production of the International Crisis Group. I'm Naz
0: Modirzadeh. And I'm Richard Atwood. You can find more of our work on Iraq and on all the other crises we cover on our website, crisisgroup.org. Or follow us on Twitter, at Crisis Group.
2: Thank you very much to our producers, Mae Francis and Ida Holly Namby.
0: Thank you, as ever, especially to our listeners. This is our last episode of the season. We're taking a short break for August. We'll be back with more episodes and a new season, a second season in September. We'd love to know what you think. What have been your thoughts or your impressions of this first season? What you'd like more of? What you'd like to hear less of? please do let us know. You can write directly to me. My Twitter handle is atwoodr or you can email Podcasts at crisisgroup.org but please do let us know what you think and we hope you'll all join us again in September for season two.